it's always an honor to uh, be sharing the word with you. I, um, one of the things that I'm gonna change up a little bit this morning here is as I was working through our series on role of women or role of men and women in the church, uh, I had a message I was gonna do this morning, but with the kids being here next week on stage and sharing you know, the joy of Christ with us and then having Christmas Sunday, which my wife and I actually have the privilege uh, to fly to Portland this uh, the year, so it'll be the first Christmas Sunday that I'm not gonna be here, but granddaughters are taking precedent over uh, services, I guess, at this point, and the elders have been gracious enough to allow me to do that, and so we'll be gone. We're flying out actually Christmas Day. But being that that was it, I was feeling like that series was getting a bit fractured, so I'm going to push that message off to January the 2nd and then put a few uh, messages together there that I think hook together really well. But having said that, I thought, well, I don't want to abandon the idea of looking and honoring women in terms of their ministry, but I want to gear it more to the idea of Christmas and what we've been thinking about the advent of Christ. So this morning, what I want to do is uh, I'm going to take us from Romans all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to track a big picture element that maybe some of you are very familiar with, others may not. But it helps us to understand how the role of women has worked in God's redemptive plan in certain ways, as well as gives us a reassurance of the sovereignty of God and his fingerprints on his purpose of redemption. So we're going to start there, but before we do, I'm going to invite you just to bow with me as we take ourselves before his throne of grace. Well, Father, what a delight uh, that we can come before your throne of grace and come with confidence not based on our own merits or our success in how we've walked with you or haven't this past week, but because of the shed blood of Christ. That this first advent where we celebrate Christ coming through a virgin conception and entering into this world as vulnerable as an infant is, is a startling process that leads to the sacrifice of your son in such a brutal way, but it is all sufficient to satisfy your wrath and open up the door for us to step into your family and be part of something that you started all the way back at the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3. We ask that you will help us to just allow our hearts to bathe in the reality of your goodness and what you have done through time and history, not just in our space and in our lifetime, but something that obviously originated in eternity past in your heart and mind and yet fleshed out in the crucible of a messed up and broken world. We ask that you would uh, increase our faith, help us to look with awe at a resurrected Jesus who took to himself flesh and blood in a unique way to become like us. Father, help us to be humbled and bow our knee before your presence that we might allow your spirit to teach us even this morning on things that we don't often think about. We ask for this and more as we bow before your presence and we give you thanks for this great privilege in Christ's name, amen. The other thing I wanna mention just as we get started is uh, this afternoon we are having uh, a service up at Garrity for Norm Shepard, a longtime friend for me at least for the last 12 years, a great encouragement and I hope you'll be praying for the family as we went through that. I noticed as I was putting things together that He passed away on the day that we remember the uh, crisis events in Hawaii during the World War. I was thinking 
that uh, and it was reviewing that back on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese slaughtered Pearl Harbor. Fortunately, they had had uh, three of their Pacific fleet carriers out doing a tour of duty and practice runs out away from the islands, and so they didn't get touched. But the casualties, as you know, are extensive. Five of their eight battleships were destroyed, three destroyers, seven other ships were sunk or severely damaged, and more than 200 aircraft were destroyed. A total of 2,400 Americans were killed and 1,200 were wounded. When you look at that moment, we can look at it in hindsight and see the extent of that disaster. That there was a scene to be all kinds of miscommunication and things where they actually knew they were coming but mistook them for being their own planes flying in as resources. And you kind of wonder as we look at that is that how did we even survive? And yet we also discover that in the midst of that disaster and that apparent defeat, that up from the, the disaster of that, the Japanese awakened a sleeping giant who then turned on them and ultimately got victory. You know, when I think of God's redemptive plan, I think back to Genesis 3 and I think the same thing. God had created Adam and Eve in an environment that was absolutely perfect. And yet it fills us with all kinds of awe and wonder about the reality of what was going on there because we know as we read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that we run into a disaster. A disaster that has as much significance as Pearl Harbor did back to the Americans and the U.S. fleet back some odd years ago. The disaster, of course, was where Adam and Eve decided that they were going to disobey what God had said and it threw all of his creation sort of under the bus. That this is the time that sin and death infiltrated the world and wrecked havoc on all of the good things that God had created. And it looked like a disaster that was unrecoverable. And yet we're gonna discover this morning that in the midst of that disaster, God plants a seed and a promise of hope that actually starts with the women, with Eve. And I wanna just sort of overview this this morning a little bit differently than we normally would, just to kind of remind ourselves not only the role of women that have, the role that women have had in God's redemptive plan in two very specific ways, but also that out of the ashes of any defeat, God always provides a window of hope and promise. And I don't know where your life's at, I don't know what kind of scenarios you're dealing with in life, but sometimes Satan wants to destroy your life and, and you happen to stumble through personal choices that are moral failures, it might be circumstances where you think are unrecoverable in life, and yet in the midst of our worst disasters, God always plants a promise of hope. So I want to begin this morning by looking at Genesis 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll have it on the screen. And it begins simply in the middle of this. I'm looking at verse 15. This is, of course, after Adam and Eve's sin. They hear God walking through the garden to come and fellowship with them, and they run and hide themselves and then they begin this nice little process of blaming one another for the disaster that they have just created. Genesis 3.15, God says, and I will put enmity or hostility, as it were, between you, and he's speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, as you begin to sort of survey this text, there's obviously way more things in here than we can deal with, but I want to do an overview of the promise of God in terms of this disaster. But I also want you to know, first of all, the context. The enmity or the hostility that comes as a result of their disobedience. It doesn't even seem to be that big a deal. He just said, don't eat certain kind of fruit. Doesn't seem to have the the worst sense of moral failure that you could think of, at least we would uh, think of it in human terms, but disobedience is disobedience and the consequences were catastrophic. What we discover is that there are two curses that come from these consequences. One is that God curses the serpent. In fact, he actually curses all of the beasts. He says, cursed are you more than all the other beasts of the field. So there's a lot of collateral damage from what happens here. There's individuals, even animals, that that get affected by someone else's sin and they had nothing to do with it. And you and I realize that sin is never a personal, individual, secluded thing that's isolated from the people around us. That sin has a way of wreaking havoc in all kinds of people's lives who we might even consider to be innocent victims. But that's the extent and the power of what sin is. The second curse is the ground. So in a sense, all of God's creation is cursed. And as he goes through this process, it's cursed because the man decided to listen to his wife's voice. When we get into January, we're going to kind of wander through that and talk a little bit about that whole scenario and how it unfolded as we try to understand roles of men and women. But there's this, uh, this enmity between the woman and the serpent and between her seed and his seed. And, and there's this going to be launching this struggle. You might call it between good and evil if you're looking at it in its most simplest terms. But this now launches the world into this deep personal struggle between humanity and the the world around it, between what we would say Satan as the serpent, and even creates in some respects separation and enmity between humankind and God. And fortunately, God is really gracious and merciful. Otherwise, this would have ended really badly. And, And so as we begin to work through it, there is not only this problem of hostility, but there's also this hardship. He goes on and says that to the woman, in toil or pain will be part of childbirth. It is something that in many ways, as she brings forth children, that pain is going to be associated with it, but I believe it's a bigger concept than that. It's not just in the act of having children that there's pain and then it's over with. The word literally means anxiety or sorrow. And one of the things you will discover in this is that she will not only bring children into the world, the seed, as it were, that, that God's going to speak about, but I, I believe that there's a, something about the fact that a woman's heart, especially bringing children, that one of the things she specializes at is relationships. When it gets around to the man, it's going to be a little bit different toil. But even though God doesn't curse the man and woman, that's really the curse was the serpent and the ground and 
the animals, this idea of toil would have something to the effect of things being tedious, things being boring or monotonous. And as thrilling as a newborn baby can be in the family, we also know that in the journey of life, they can break our heart. I know all kinds of families whose kids have created a tremendous amount of sorrow because they've abandoned the faith or they've started a lifestyle that, that is self-destructive and, it bring, and it, there's no one that it tears the heart out of more than mothers. They have a special, unique, as it were, almost gifting that almost transcends what men can do because this toil that she goes through just anchors her to children and to relationships in ways that sometimes we struggle with. But in the midst of this, the, the, the toil also carries into their relationship. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, which you're gonna, as we step into January, talk about egalitarians, they would consider this to be sort of the, the consequence of a ruined relationship, and so now the dominance or the authority that man has over women is a, simply an effect of the fall. Well, wait till January to figure that one out. But as they go through this, I, you also need to notice that the idea of the toil for the man isn't geared to children, it isn't geared to relationships, it is really geared to the idea of work and labor. And it is something that men love to do. They love to do stuff. They like to work with their hands. They like to produce something. They like to create something. And that's oftentimes what defines their sense of identity. But it also has a certain tediousness and a vanity to it because when we define our existence around simply our work and our occupation, then, then there's something that's empty about that. It's, it doesn't really fulfill who we are. And so there's this hardship now that, that is created because of this disaster. And, and so we have this hostility, we have sin and death and suffering, we have this problem of hardship in relationships, certainly between the husband and wife, Adam and Eve. We have this struggle that's going to be existing through our whole existence, and we see it played out every day of our lives, in our own experience and in the lives of people that we know and love. But in the midst of this, God gives a promise of hope. God makes a statement that is powerful. And, and rather, go back, rather than going back over the text, it simply is this idea that the serpent, if I can put it this way and maybe something that's memorable, that the serpent is the one who sowed the seeds of the woman's deception, so it will be the seed of the woman that destroys the serpent's head. And it's interesting as you begin to think about this is out of every failure, as I've mentioned before, out of every failure, defeat, and sin, God provides a pathway for hope and promise. God had every right to judge and condemn and pour out his wrath. I mean, you, you just can't blame that many other people or things. There's only two of them. I mean, you just, there's nowhere to go with this, and God could have easily said, well, I'm just going to terminate you two, and we're going to start over. And yet he doesn't do that. But I also want you to notice that often the very person who seems to fail the most is the very person that God uses to change everything. The, the often, not always, but often the very person who seems to fail the most is the very person God uses for his own glory. I'll praise the Lord for that. I mean, we all have a whole history and legacy of things where we failed and made bad choices. And, and many times, for most of us, it feels like it's unrecoverable. 
There's no way to get back to where we were. And yet God says in this particular situation, even though the woman seems to be on the front edge of the disaster, and we'll talk about that, she's the one that God's going to choose to bring a hope of promise that, that even they will get to experience as he forgives and clothes them, even though they lose the privilege of being in the garden. But what we have to recognize is that Eve is going to be the centerpiece. She's going to be the cornerstone of this promise because it's the seed of the woman. Obviously, she needs Adam, but he doesn't talk about it in those terms. He says it's the seed of the woman. The, the word seed means offspring or descendant. It's this she becomes absolutely essential to this redemptive promise that God's going to make. And I don't think we ought to ignore that. And we'll see as we move through this that as Adam and Eve don't represent Israel or the Jews, they don't even exist yet, they don't show up till chapter 12, that there's some hope for humanity. And I tell you, when we live in the culture that we're doing and and that we're living in, there's good reason to give up hope for humanity. It's crumbling around at the seams. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The hostility that they talked about in Genesis 3 is surfacing like an active volcano. And so there's nothing new here, but sometimes going through it ourselves forces us to think about my relationship to God in ways that I've never thought about it. I mean, raising a kid in in the culture that we're living in I mean, every generation says this, boy, I don't know if I could do it now. It was tough enough when I, we were raising kids back when we were there, we were worried. Now, it just seems to be exponentially more significant. And yet God gives, always gives a sense of hope and promise in the midst of even the worst kinds of situations. So what happens, the, the, the key in this is the significance of this reference to the seed, It's hard to necessarily understand all that he's talking about. The question is, what does it refer to, and what is it, or who does it refer to? I just finished reading out of one of my theological journals about a 15-page article that was trying to debate the simplicity of, does this refer to a single person, or does it refer to a group of people? Now, most of you would be bored out of your mind reading that. I kind of get a kick out of it, but anyway, that's just kind of the way I'm wired, And the answer is yes. I mean, some of you are already in your head going, wait a minute, I think Paul says something like that in Galatians, doesn't he? He already kind of explains that whole idea that that it's not about seeds and many, it's about Christ. Well, you're getting way ahead of the storyline because we're in Genesis, not Galatians yet. And, And so the idea here is that when you deal with this idea of the seed, it deals with a descendant or descendants or offspring, children, Individuals who come from their own flesh. And and the next time you run into this really is in Genesis, after God makes the promise to Abraham that he will make him a great nation. It actually doesn't come up again until chapter 22, where God uses the same language that he uses here in Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman. He talks about it as Abraham's seed. And in chapter 22, he makes three promises to Abraham. Now, you remember, if you remember chapter 22, this is the time where he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and he was, God told him to offer his own son as a sacrifice, ironically enough. And God comes to him, once he 
he's about ready to sacrifice his son, and Hebrew says, well, if God's going to keep his promise, he's going to have to raise him from the dead. That's an astounding level of faith since there was nothing in his experience that would tell him that. And he comes, and God says, I will greatly multiply your seed. So the idea of seed means a multitude of individuals who are your descendants. He then says, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So there's discussion that as Abraham, God forges this people called the Jews or Israel, that God is going to give them victory over evil. And that's really simplistic in the discussion, but there's something that touches real life even for them in terms of not the ultimate fulfillment that we'll see, but that God's going to protect his people. That, that, that this struggle and hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of, of the woman is going to hit the rubber where the road is, as it were, and, and it's going to have some ramifications on how the Jewish people flash out. He also says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, which would refer not just to the Jewish people, but everyone, all the Gentiles. So, if you'll excuse the, the expression, seated within the promise of his seed is this future hope that somehow, through his, their descendants, their offspring, God's going to bring a redemptive plan that's going to touch the entire world. It's staggering. I don't know who thought this up. Oh, yeah, actually, I do. But this obviously isn't the ingenuity of human beings. It is way too complex. It is way too amazing to see that out of this bizarre process of simply having children and bringing them in, God has a redemptive process in that where their seed, the woman's seed, will bring hope for a totally broken world. And so Eve becomes absolutely critical in this. Now, as we begin to work through this and the, this whole idea of the seed of Abraham, I want you to, I'm going to think big picture, so I'm skipping around a little bit this morning. I don't usually do that. Well, sometimes I do, but anyway, the but I want you to understand this idea of seed. Is it mean talking about one particular individual or is it a group? What does it look like? Well, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 1 because what we discover is that when God made this promise to the woman that your seed will crush the serpent's head, it, 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 there's a long way off till its ultimate fulfillment, and we'll see that in a few minutes. But the next time he talks about it, it's with Abraham as God begins to forge a people of his own choosing that he talks about the promises that I just read to you. That all the people in the world will at some point be blessed because of your seed, of your descendants. Now does that mean the whole people? Well that's the thing we need to struggle with. But in Matthew 1, 1 and 2, we won't go through it all, it gives us a genealogy. You know, the stuff you all skip over when you're reading Matthew, Right? Yeah, when you get to your, read through the Bible in a year and you look at it and go, yeah, okay, a bunch of people, let's go to chapter two. That's what you do, right? Don't know who they are, don't know where they're at. So that, that becomes the journey, but it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word there in Greek actually means Genesis. Now, it's not exactly the reason why the book of Genesis is called Genesis. That's actually talking about the 10 times through the book of Genesis that it talks about this is the records of, this gener of Abraham or uh, Seth or whoever. So it's talking about their seed, their offspring. And it's done 10 times through the book of Genesis. So again, it's talking about descendants and offspring and people. 
Because we've got to remember that God isn't as concerned about reforming structures and cultures as much as he is about saving people. And so what we have is this genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the promise God reiterates from the statement to the woman who her seed will bring this hope, he reiterates to Abraham and makes him promises that he will, he will make a huge impact. And then when we get to Jesus in this genealogy, we have individual after individual after individual who sort of gets the baton and passes on the promise by their very existence and, and creates this chain link that travels all the way back to Abraham. It's astounding. That's why it's so vital to understand the genealogies. Because God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 about her seed. you got to be able to, in some ways, track that. How do, you, how do you know that's actually going to happen? Wonder if the seed all die, like Abraham almost did to Isaac. That would have ended it. What happens if someone gets killed in war? What happens if somebody goofs it up and the seed perishes? Well, Genesis, or Matthew 1, and we're not going to read it all, gives this lineage, this heritage of succession of individuals who are part of this lineage. And it shows the amazing sovereignty of God as he puts his fingerprints on this journey of protecting people, of bringing people into that process where he accomplishes his goal even in the chaos of human behavior. It's astounding. And it sustains the viability of the promise. This physical seed that starts with the seed of the woman, Adam and Eve, goes through Abraham and it comes all the way down to Jesus. Now, let me point out one other thing about this. If you read through there, which I encourage you to do sometime, actually, if you read a name, go to a dictionary, look up who it is, figure out where they lived, and you'll all of a sudden realize this isn't just some weird Christmas list of people that you want to meet. There are real people who lived in real time, and if you see the chaos that some of them created and that they were surrounded by, it's absolutely amazing that we're even here talking about this. It's staggering. Matthew 1, further on in the text, the reference there I've missed, I forgot to change, but it talks about Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. These are part of the uh, kings of, Ju- of Judah, uh, long after Israel disappeared and were deported. And you'll notice it says, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Now that might ring a bell, good King Josiah, the little kid who was surrounded by good good counselors and tried to reestablish worship of God. And then it says, Josiah was the father of Jeconiah. Now, I won't go into a lot of detail, but Jeconiah was a turkey. This guy was a bad dude. He didn't care a lot about who God was. He did whatever he wanted in his own eyes. He was not a nice person. He would, might be considered evil. And God comes to the end of his rope with him And he's an individual that's in this lineage that goes from the seed of the woman to Abraham and as you said in in the first couple of verses, all the way to Jesus. But what we have to realize, if you go back to Jeremiah 22, this will catch you off guard if you don't know it already, is that back in Jeremiah 22, the Lord is so fed up with Jeconiah that he says this, thus says the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, down as childless a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring or seed or descendants 
shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, for all intents and purposes, this seems like a really stupid move by God. Because this is the lineage, this is the seed that is leading to Jesus, and all of a sudden now, God condemns one of the kings because he's so bad that nobody in his line is going to sit on the throne. Well, that seems to create a small problem. Because how, how is God going to fulfill this promise of hope if he condemns one of the people in that seed line and that none of his descendants will ever rule on the throne? And I can show you, uh, if you get back to uh, Matthew chapter 1, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who's called the Messiah. That's in the same narrative, the same genealogy that Jeconiah is in. But what does it tell us? Well, what it tells us is that when we get down to Mary and Joseph around Christmas time here, we know the story. They were engaged to be married, and Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, but it wasn't his. So he was the legal father of Jesus, but not the physical father. That still might seem to create a problem, but that's how God gets around this. The virgin conception isn't just a nice magic trick to, for us to sit back and go, wow, that was cool. It was absolutely necessary because God condemned Jeconiah and said, none of your descendants, none of your seed is going to rule on the throne. So the way he gets around it is that Joseph becomes the legal father of, jo- of Jesus, but not the physical father. Now, what other ways can you get around it? Well, if you think about it and go to Luke 3, which is the other long genealogy that you skip in your devotional times, this list works backwards. It talks about Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, this works backwards, and it works backwards if you follow and trace it, uh, one, you'll discover that Jeconiah isn't in this list. There are individuals that are b- part of both lists, but there's individuals who are part of the Luke list that are different. But you will notice, if you work further on this, that this goes back to Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. There's different speculations about how this fits together. Some will suggest that this is Mary's physical line and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So Jesus now becomes part of the physical seed of the woman in Genesis 3 and there's the legal part of it that Joseph is part of it as well. Now I don't know anyone who could just make that up. That's absolutely astounding and it's not just semantics. The virgin conception was absolutely necessary for God to fulfill his promises, even when he judged Jeconiah. And so it becomes a staggering reality that God tells us in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman, the woman becomes an absolutely critical starting point, if you want to put it that way. That the whole hope rests on the seed that she's going to produce, the offspring. Obviously, Adam's involved, but he refers to it as the seed of the woman. When you get down to Christmas, it's Mary, a woman, who brings 
the, the individual that we know, the seed, the Messiah, that Christ himself into the world that fulfills all the promises of hope, not just for Israel, but for humanity. And, and we'll see this in Galatians 3, where some of your minds went earlier. The whole idea in Galatians 3 is where the, Paul says this, indeed, um, and he's quoting what God said to Moses. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. In your seed all the nations shall be blessed before uh, you have obeyed my voice. Now when you get to Galatians 3.16, it says this. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham, the ones I just read, and to his offspring, or the word is seed, it does not say, and to offsprings. So Paul isn't trying to re-exegete the theology of the Old Testament. He's talking about the final fulfillment of what this is going to happen. So God starts with a woman who's an individual, and then her seed ends up being resting on Abraham, who's an individual. There's successive individuals that keep this line going, both through Joseph and Mary. And, and when it comes to Mary, it comes back to an individual the mother of Jesus, who brings the Messiah, the individual, into the world who will save the multitudes. I mean, it's astounding when you begin to sort of get your mind even around a little bit of this. That God's sovereignty in guaranteeing the promise that he made and the hope of salvation in the midst of an absolute disaster it ought to just thrill our hearts that there's hope for everybody. There's hope for you as you're sitting there and thinking that because you've lost your job or your relationships are kind of on the rocks or that you're not sure that you have a purpose or you don't know where you're going in life or you've made choices that feel like they're a disaster. We have to realize that if we can get before the God of the universe and humble ourselves before him, he always provides a promise of hope in the midst of our worst disasters. And here he has two women sort of running anchor, both in Genesis 3 and in Matthew chapter 1, who are going to be the ones that he uses to bring the individuals to the forefront of humanity that will change everything. And so he says, it's not to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So what he's simply doing here is he's saying, listen, at the end of this entire lineage, the person who ultimately fulfills the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head, even though he will bruise his heel, which obviously is a reference to the cross and the crucifixion, as horrific as that is, that's kind of like a bruise to God. But the reality is that apparent appearance of defeat and failure that Jesus gets crucified is the crushing blow that will destroy the domination of Satan. And he no longer has power over individuals who will surrender to God through faith in Christ and discover a new life under the care and the authority of a God who cares for them. 
He goes on in Galatians chapter 3, and we'll come back to this in January, for you are all sons or children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. So there's something that when we receive Jesus, when we recognize he died on the cross for our sin, and I'm willing to surrender to that and receive and believe in Christ that he is the sufficient sacrifice to deal with my garbage and the sin and the bad choices and the chaos and the separation, then God takes me and places me into him, into this new relationship with him where he calls us children. So he not only loves us by demonstrating the sacrifice of his son, when we surrender to him, then he makes us part of his family. And so the greatest gift at Christmas is recognizing that this infant named Jesus becomes the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head and will set every person free who puts faith and trust in him. It's a, it's a new humanity that has not got it figured out, but we're learning how to live with the values that God wants us to live. We're learning to be parents who are putting the priority of God before the inclinations of the culture. And he goes on in this text where he says, even in verse 28, now there's neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there any male or female, for you are all one in Christ, if you belong to Christ. Can I ask you, do you know that you belong to Christ this morning? Do you really know that you belong to Christ? I know all kinds of people who've grown up in the church and they go to church and they do nice things and they help people and they belong to nonprofit organizations and they help at the food center or whatever it happens to be. And they think if they do all the right things, then they get to belong to Jesus. And Paul's really adamant about this. You will never do enough good things that will impress God to say, hey, I want you to be in my body. I want you to be part of my family and spend eternity in heaven because you're doing a lot of good, right things. It's only when we accept Christ as our Savior, where he forgives us of our sin and cleanses us from that and adopts us into his family because that's what Ephesians 2 says. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You can't earn it, you can't pay for it, you can't bribe God for it, you can't barter with him. There's nothing that you will ever do other than simply by faith, believing in who God is and his promise and receiving Christ into your life. I don't know what gifts you're gonna get at Christmas, but there's no greater gift than the risen Christ. And so as he, he deals with this, I want to remind you that I'm not just making that up, it's John 1.12. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, God has given the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but they're born of God. God does something in your life that you cannot do yourself. You know, the beauty of Christmas, and I don't want you to get mad at me for saying that, but the, the, the spirit of Christmas isn't about family. I mean, it's a great part of it, but that's not really the spirit of Christmas. It's not about the gifts or the trees or the lights. I mean, that's become sort of a, a, 
a byproduct of a world that has rejected Christ to some degree and said, well, we're not gonna fill it up with the gift that God gives to us in Jesus. We're gonna make it like a celebration of other stuff without God. That doesn't mean if you have trees or decorations that it's wrong, but it's, tr- it's a tragedy that goes beyond comprehension if that replaces Jesus. And so we discover that the two anchor points are women. Eve is the seed of the woman who will bring about the promise of hope. And Mary at this end, who manifests the Messiah, Christ himself, as the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman who destroys the works of Satan and gives every person the chance not only to find forgiveness of sins but freedom in Christ, to learn a new way of life that honors and glorifies Christ. I mean, women had a pretty strategic role in this. And it's something that we need to recognize in our own life. They didn't really earn it. In fact, if they did anything, Eve disqualified herself from any privilege of position to make a difference. But that's the generosity and compassion and mercy of our God. He takes broken human beings who fail and sin, who do hurtful things, who say cruel things, and he redeems them, not because they deserve it, because he's a good God. He's a gracious God. And he gives hope even in the midst of our worst crisis and disaster that seems unrecoverable. He gives the promise of hope and life. And the question I wanna ask you this morning is do you know that hope? because you've received Christ as your savior. That's the beauty and the magic of Christmas, without question. Father, you know, we sometimes work way too hard at this. We have the privilege to understand the infinite grace you have bestowed upon us, and it started all the way back in the first failure in that Genesis chapter three. You took the seed of the woman and you began to construct a people through Abraham where you made promises that would not only change a people or an ethnic group, but would change the entire world. This is not meant to be just another religion to help our our own self-improvement program. This has come into the reality of our own sin and our own weakness that apart and on our own, we are your enemies. We are in a position of being hostile towards you because we will not love you with all of our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And so we bow before your presence this morning and we ask you to forgive us for thinking that we can live life independent of you. Sometimes we've done that as individuals Sometimes we've done that as parents, thinking if we train our kids to live really well in the world that we've prepared them for godly life. Sometimes we've been so successful in the work world that we've forgotten that we can fail at home. It's not about our efforts, 
It's about your promise of hope in the person of Jesus. It's at your throne of grace that we can find forgiveness and comfort, encouragement and hope, regardless of how disastrous our own situation may seem. Because you indeed, out of the ashes of our worst disasters, you are a God of hope. Thank you for your generosity. Help it not to be in vain towards us. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.